Morrison says sorry to women, but what's changed? Colbeck no-show on aged care crisis. Morrison MPs support QAnon in Canberra. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to a late edition of The Week on Wednesday for this week. My name is Ben Davison and I am joined from Melbourne by the great, the glorious, the Van Batam. How are you, Van? I am the Van Batam. I am the <laughs> Van Batam. Um, I'm very tired, Ben, as well you know. I have been doing a super secret project involving television cameras today, and I have a face full of makeup and yet can barely move. <laughs> yes, that's right. Although we are in the same state, we are not in the same place. So the wonders of modern technology are allowing us to record today. But Let's dive straight into it because it is. it has been a huge week and it is still a huge week. Uh, it's only Wednesday, as they say, uh, in Australian politics. Of course, yesterday, Scott Morrison delivered an apology uh, to particularly to women, but for the generations of bullying and harassment in Parliament House. Now, Van, this apology comes on the back of the Jenkins report into the culture at Parliament House uh, and also comes uh, on the back of, uh, you know, the the allegations by Brittany Higgins uh, and many, many others, as it turns out, through that report around bullying and, and harassment, particularly sexual harassment of women. And, of course, today Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame gave a joint National Press Club speech uh, where they were critical of Morrison, uh, and some would say rightly so, for not actually doing something about the problems. But he's given an apology, Ben. Surely if you apologise, it means everything just goes away and ceases being a problem. Isn't that what happens? I think I that's mean, what he'd like to have happen. Seriously. I mean, you just ask any rape survivor just how much an apology of institutional failure means because just your trauma just goes away. You totally get your life back, you know, just the nightmares stop, you know, you recover your pre-rape behaviour. That's what happens if the Prime Minister apologises. Like, it's all fine. And the crime of rape never happens again. Did you know? If the Prime Minister makes an apology, we don't actually have to do anything because we know those crimes will magically disappear. Because an apology is sort of like a magical spell, Ben. You just say it and then everything's fine. Well, it certainly seems like that's what he's hoping. He, he did today in Parliamentary Question Time outline some of the spending on various programs, but it's I think important to note here, Van, that uh, that Brittany Higgins has made clear that the processes for staffers to even make a complaint is still very hard, that there are 28 recommendations of the Jenkins report that still need to be implemented. And, you know, there has been nothing from the Morrison government to bring about paid domestic violence leave, no movement on removing the superannuation threshold. 200,000 Australian women are currently doing work for, for which they're paid, for which they receive no super, uh, have no right to super. And, of course, the Respect at Work report recommended putting sexual harassment into OH&S laws, thus making it an employer responsibility, including Parliament as an employer, uh, 
And of course, Morrison hasn't done that either. So there's a lot that hasn't been done in this space. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the thing. What this government is really good at is pointing at budget allocations and pretending that's action. And yet we know from this government that they make budget allocations but don't actually spend the money. I mean, whether it's um, frontline services uh, in domestic violence prevention or social violence prevention or whether it's bushfire recovery, you know, there's all kinds of the Great Barrier Reef restoration. Money gets allocated and then we're all supposed to go, oh, it's all right, they're spending money on it. But it's like, what does it actually look like? And what policy context does that exist in? And what's actually going to change? And what are the key performance indicators? How do we know that that money is actually leading to anything? And the Morrison government aren't really big on things leading to change. It's not, it's not really part of their act. And, you know, feminists have been calling for decades for like a whole of government response to the problem of violence against women and things that need to change. Just, you know, the paid domestic violence leave is a really important one. Like it shouldn't be harder for women to get help than not to get help if they're in a situation that's vulnerable to violence. Like you should be supported to take the measures that you can take and there should be measures you are able to take to get yourself out of harm's way. One of the things that feminists have wanted for a very long time is for a government response, legislated, resourced, dedicated personnel so that women don't have to flee their homes to get away from an abuser, that law enforcement comes and takes the abuser out of the woman's home. So her displacement, her economic suffering is, is not compounded by the fact that she's dealing with an abuse issue. Like it's things like this that have been talked about and talked about and talked about, but that's not really how Morrison rolls. No. So he's made an apology. Well, good on him. Did his wife help him write it? Because we know that, you know, Jenny has a way with these things really. Like she really has a way. Mm. I'm just, I'm so like this shouldn't be hard. Enough women have died for it to be uncontestable. You know, there were recommendations from the Family Violence Report. Like, you know, there are recommendations from the Jenkins Report. Like, we know that somebody in Parliament House, like, assaulted Julia Banks. We know that it was a member of Scott Morrison's own caucus room who did that, but we're not being told who it is. The Prime Minister is not taking action on that. We just, we don't know. It's all behind closed doors. Nothing appears visible and we just are where we are. It's it's really quite disturbing, isn't it? And it and it sort of reinforces in my mind the importance of the union campaign, the We Won't Wait campaign, which is really about delivering these things in the workplace uh, and using the, the power of being in union to achieve some of these things that we're talking about, paid domestic violence leave, superannuation on every dollar earned, uh, having a focus on sexual harassment, that government hasn't been delivering, that unions are saying, well, we're going to go workplace by workplace. Of course, we want government to do it because that's the whole of society. But with the Morrison government refusing to take that responsibility Unions are stepping up, and it's a good time 
as always, for me to remind people that if you care about these issues in your workplace, then join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow. Every union in the country is committed to these, these goals of having paid domestic violence leave, removing the threshold which gets that cuts women out of superannuation and, and having a focus on sexual harassment as a workplace issue that is dealt with as a responsibility of the employer. You know, Grace Tame made a couple of points in the press club speech, Fan. I just want to get your views on what you think of these, these three priorities. Uh, for the government to take the issue of abuse in all its forms seriously, and by that she means proactive, preventative measures, no more reactive Band-Aid electioneering stunts. Uh, number two, more funding for prevention education, which is actually implemented, going back to your point about things not being done. Uh, and number three, national consistent legislative change. Uh, and again, to your point, Grace Tame says today perpetrators of abuse find safety in outdated, inconsistent legislation which both protects them and perpetuates social ignorance. Just your views on, on those priorities, Van. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what I mean. The legislative framework is based in something from the 19th century, you know, and when I say framework, that's not just about the laws, that's about, you know, policing and services and what the workplace looks like. You know, we, we live in a reality where we inherited a system where it used to be legal to 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 beat your part, your female partner it used to be legal in some parts of this in in this country until the 1990s to rape your partner if you were married to them that was legal you know and that's like i was at university by the time that that finally became illegal across this country these are the attitudes that we inherit and those attitudes inform the social structures reporting policing all of these things and you know and grace tame is right like the priorities are right it's just constant empty gestures and budget allocations from these people and it's really hard to not just feel despondent. I'm sorry if everybody can tell in my voice, I feel pretty despondent. Like an apology? Great. That's awesome. You know, apologies are supposed to be a ceremony marking the actual change that goes behind that apology. That's why we we got into apologies, you know, as a political practice because Mm. they're to sum up what the actual, you know, legislative... Legislative amends are supposed to be for harm. Yeah. But that's not where we are. And, you know, like good on Grace Tame for continuing to drive this conversation. And it just, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard watching it and just feeling that, you know, we're going to, we're going to play games and point at things and not actually solve the problem. Well, I think. You know, going to your point about not solving the problems, you know, we've, you and I have had a couple of discussions about the religious discrimination bill, which the Morrison government has prioritised over any of the legislation that we've just talked about he could have put in place that would have actually helped women uh, either in the workplace or at home or in communities. 
uh, or in retirement. None of that has been put on the agenda for this parliamentary sitting, but the Religious Discrimination Bill has been. And, of course, it's we've seen some amazing speeches, some discussion about this. Ian Thorpe has come out very strongly against it. Uh, and the, it's quite a divisive uh, piece of legislation. Uh, it doesn't seem like anybody is happy with it. Both the far right of the Liberal Party seem to want it to go further. The moderates think it goes too far. Labor's proposing to move amendments in the Senate uh, and saying that if it gets elected, it will repeal the legislation. You know, it's it's a bit of a dog's breakfast and really seems to be about Morrison trying to shore up uh, his internal caucus numbers and and you know, some fringe slithers of electoral votes. Well, yeah, and it's frustrating. It's really frustrating because this is not this is not an an absolute priority. You know, you turn around to the majority of Australians and say, what do you think? The government has what, nine sitting days left of parliament until the election? Like Yeah, about that. Yep. So what's a priority? I think overwhelmingly Australians would say, well, Scott Morrison did promise an independent commission against corruption, not a very strong one, and not one that would have the kind of powers that ICAC does in, for example, New South Wales. But that's a priority. There's a corruption problem. There's a transparency problem. We know that this is happening. Australians want action on this. Australians don't like billions of dollars being parceled out to the donor mates of Scott Morrison without accountability or knowing who's getting what where. And like, Australia, Australia is now currently at the lowest level on the international corruption watch list, if you like. We're in the worst position we've ever been uh, uh, under the Morrison government. This is this Is, is anybody surprised? After <laughs> Angus Taylor, is anybody surprised? You know, like again and again and again and again after Susan, like like these constant, you know, and there's no action taken by Morrison, there never is, constant fudging of the rules, these weird land grants, cash for car parks, sports rorts, it's ongoing, it's absolutely unacceptable. That report in New South Wales this week about how the majority of um the majority of money that comes from poker machine taxes in New South Wales comes from Labor seats, but the majority of the money they bring in is spent in Liberal seats, like 75% of it is spent in Liberal seats. It's literally um, reverse Robin Hooding is is what's going on there. And the idea that this country, like a friend of mine did a lot of research a few years ago where she looked at Australia and Argentina as like comparable countries. You know, they're both... Um, you know, yeah. settler colonial countries that had like various um, similar post-colonial phenomena, their mineral, like mineral and construction based, like all these similarities with the economy. And yet Australia was a rich, prosperous country and Argentina wasn't. It had terrible, terrible problems with endemic poverty and instability and leading to, you know, political extremism and the rest of it. And the conclusion drawn by political scientists was that, Corruption um, meant that 
the culture of corruption in Argentina and developing corruption as a standard political practice meant that Argentina never developed strong internal markets and prosperity wasn't shared and this ongoing sort of perpetuation of an unequal society occurred. Um, Like I said, somebody else did this research. I can't speak authoritatively, but it's worth considering that the strength of this country was that we had developed a resilience to corruption that we are now losing. And I think if you turn around to particularly, you know, Australians who've who've come from countries that don't have strong anti-corruption traditions, and there are plenty of them, like is is fighting corruption important to you? The answer is yes, because they've seen that, you know, opportunities are not distributed fairly if, in a corrupt environment. So we're now in this situation where we're debating not you know, the need to take a stand against corruption and to have transparency and anti-corruption measures in place. We're not prioritising this enormous social campaign for action for the survivors of um, sexual violence and other forms of violence, violence against women. We're having a discussion about religious discrimination, which I understand, like I do fundamentally understand that there is an issue that has to be resolved around issues of speech because of Israel Folau and, uh, like, where is the line? There's a discussion that needs to be had about where is the line around expressing, you know, like a, a statement of faith and impinging on somebody else's right to go through, like, society without having harm wielded against them through speech or anything else. That's actually that's an important discussion to have. Is it our most important discussion at the moment? Uh, no, it's not pressing. And yet we're in this situation that rather than have a discussion about how to accommodate everybody's rights simultaneously and determining what the line of acceptable discourse and behaviour is, we're having a discussion that essentially gets down to can Christian colleges expel trans students? That's really... That's sort of where this has ended up. And it is insulting, ridiculous, harmful, threatening, and just really hostile. It's hostile. It's hostile legislation that scapegoats one of the most vulnerable groups within the community. Is that where we're at in Australia? All these years of progress. Every time you take a referendum to the Australian people going, should we be a bit more fair? The Australian people go, yeah, 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 we should be more fair. Right, yeah. that's that's a cultural virtue here. That they're, the, almost, they're almost the only referendums that do succeed. Otherwise, yeah, we're the success. Should we ban the Communist Party? No, actually, we shouldn't because that would be unfair. Should we enfranchise First Nations Australians with a vote? Well, well, yeah, yeah, we should. Uh, should we make it possible for Ben's parents to get married? They have been together twenty five years and would like to. Yes, let's have that vote. All right, so. That's where we are as a nation. Like Australians love fairness. You have never met a people so absolutely obsessed with the notion of things being fair in, you know, geopolitical terms. And yet we have a government who's like, you know what, we should make things a little less fair. But using the language of fairness and freedom and, and you know, anti-discrimination to pose something that's quite discriminatory. And it's no. like it is totally fine and, I like, 
I'm a religious person, but I'm a white Western religious person who is a Roman Catholic. Like we haven't been persecuted in this country for a while. We were in the past. I'm sure there are families that bear the, the, you know, inherited trauma of back in the day when Catholics weren't allowed to apply for jobs and they didn't use to build schools or hospitals in Catholic areas and there was systemic discrimination against Catholics. But it's over, Rover. Like we're not an oppressed class here anymore. That's not a thing that's happening. I do understand that there are like faith communities within Australia who have become targets of religious intolerance, which is actually what you do because, like, there are very strict laws against racism. Like, I think we all know that the targeting of ethnic minorities in this country is often done through a veil of attacking their religions, and I think we've all seen a bit of police profiling perhaps in that particular context. I think we've seen it, and I think we know that some ancient hatreds take a long time to die, and they do affect faith communities in this country. That's true. But legislating religious freedom is not about a licence to bully trans children. Like, I, think, I think, Van, Jesus Christ. I think that's really one of the key points that it boils down to in, in my mind is who, who actually benefits from this and, and why do they need this? Well, it seems to me that who benefits from this, as you say, is probably mostly a small collection of, of fairly extremely minded uh, schools who want to collect money from the government and still have the right to throw the children of Australian citizens out of their school. And fundamentally for me, I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with people deciding that the, the basis of their children's education will be a fundamentalist religion uh, tenant. Like that, 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 that's what they want to do. I do have issue across the board, by the way, with the idea that that school can take money from the general pool of taxpayers, our commonwealth, uh, and then decide to discriminate against members of the commonwealth on the basis of who they are. I fundamentally I have a problem with that. I've said that before on this show. I think it's wrong for us to do that. And we know they want to do it because we saw this at City Point, uh, that religious school in Queensland wanting everybody to sign a contract that essentially said that being like being LGBTQIA was the same as bestiality. Um, I'm not going to draw pictures to explain it to you. You're adults. You should be able to work out it's not. But um, And I'm saying that to the people who drafted yeah. that contract. I'm quite sure everybody who listens to this show is a reasonable human being. Um, and also that school in Western Sydney, you know, and this whole idea that, that somehow signing a, a contract, like it, it's literally – it's from the don't be gay sparky South Park school of just absolute impositional intolerance. It's outrageous and it's not okay. Like it's not okay to do to adults. It's certainly not okay to do to children. I think- and if you're religion, and can I just say this as a person of faith, like mm. 
if your religion is best expressed through bullying trans children, I think you might need to, you know, maybe go back to the core texts because, like, I've spent a lot of time with the holy book of my religion, as Ben well knows, and I'm I'm yet to see, you know, the um the the claim that bullying trans children is holy or gets you out of purgatory or um or or, or you know leads to your salvation like that's that's not a thing I it's think not actually a thing it's oh, not yeah. a thing to anybody you're quite right and and Van Stephen Jones uh, who's the uh, Labor MP uh, from New South Wales I think Throsby is his seat um, he gave a really remarkable speech last night. On this issue, um, tragically, his nephew recently passed, uh, and uh, he talked about his nephew uh, and the bullying that his nephew had suffered as a result of being gay. And he also talked about uh, his son. I believe he identifies him as his, as his son in the speech, uh, who. Uh, as he put it, bravely moves between uh, men's clothing and women's clothing and the worry and concern that he has, not about his son, but about the reaction that the world will have to him. And It's a really beautiful speech. I put it on my public Facebook page if you want to see it because it's a father going, I love my son for who he is and I'm frightened of the world beyond our house. And I think one of the points that he made, he said it towards the end of the speech, he says, there'll be lots of people who, having heard me say all of this, will expect me now to say, um, dump the bill. Um, But I'm not going to say that. Instead, what I'm going to say is, Religious freedom is important, but this is not the way to achieve it. And let's take a step back and do this right. And I think there are discussions to be had around protecting religious freedom. Of course there are. But there are also discussions to be had about ensuring the rights of children and building a community that accepts people for who they are and how government plays a role in determining what is acceptable conduct when you are looking for public funds, when you are using public land, when you are educating children in a public educational system, and that this bill doesn't address those issues. It caters to, as you say, a very small minority of people who seem to want to bully trans children. And look, you know, we've now reached the stage, I do want us to move on in a moment, but we've reached the stage, of course, where it's so close to an election and it's a parliamentary sitting and none of the really vital, pressing, important issues that we've talked about regarding women and violence and violence against children, sexual violence against children as well, by the way, um, or aged care, which we'll talk about in a moment, none of those issues are being focused on. This is now a, a bill that has been described as having no friends, is now the subject of the Westminster Parliamentary Parlour Games that take place where people say they'll vote for it in the lower house but against it in the upper house or move amendments to try and get government senators to cross the floor or test numbers to try and knock off the worst bits and pledge to 
repeal it or change it again if elected and all of the things that people I think quite rightly in this country have had a gutful when it comes to politics uh, are now going to happen today, possibly into tomorrow, and at some point some version of a bill that has no friends will become law in Australia, possibly only for a few months and possibly with a delayed start date that means it may well be repealed before it becomes enforceable, but still it has chewed up far too much time, energy, effort, and pain and trauma for many, many people. Oh, it's, you know, friends of mine have contacted me who are like, what is this going to mean for me? What is this going to mean for my children? You know, and it's just like... What can you say? It's like there are some dinosaurs, like fire-breathing, blood-vomiting, awful, smelly dinosaurs who lurk about the Liberal Party and their various fundraisers who are the kind of people who issue contracts to children um, to, you know, um, don't be gay, sparky. Like they, they lurk around... They, you know, are a sliver of votes. They're a bigger sliver of influence. They wield disproportional control and they're motivated by bigotry and hate. Like, and that's the reason why this is even a thing. I would really like there to be some clarity around, um, around religious freedom in this country that doesn't impinge on the LGBTQIA community. And the fact that those two, that, you know, your faith and your sexuality are being positioned in this debate as in conflict is the nuttiest thing. I I just can't, this might be, and hopefully, you know, I do ask the God that I believe in to intervene and ensure that Morrison is not re-elected. So this could potentially be the last few months of Morrison's reign as Prime Minister and what he is choosing to prioritise is a faith versus sexuality conflagration. And I'm just like, and faith versus gender identity. And it's just like, what it's, are, it's almost unbelievable. If we weren't living through it, you'd almost say that it was too nutty to be a work of fiction. Uh, the devil will be in the detail. And so it's very difficult for us to give people a precise breakdown of what's, what's in it, what it means. What it, what it, what impact it will have. As I say, there are so many permutations now that it's in the kind of parliamentary parlor games phase that it's. I'm, I apologise to those of you who've tuned in, hoping to hear a detailed breakdown. But we just, just don't know, and we just because don't it's, know. we're now we're now in the phase where it goes to the Senate. Um, because Labor don't have the votes to block it in the House. I just want to be very clear with people, the same parliamentary majority that makes Scott Morrison the Prime Minister, which is the majority of seats are held by the Liberal Party, mean that Labor are in the minority and they cannot block anything. Even with all the crossbenches, they can't stop bills from getting through the House. That's not how the numbers work. There are different numbers in the Senate, but as we know, the Senate is just the land of chaos and fire and we can't give you any more clarity on the bill because Labor are pursuing amendments to to gut the hate from the bill, but how 
Jackie Lambie, Central Alliance and One Nation uh, and the Greens are going to impact on that process. Who knows? Who knows? We don't even know how some of the government's own senators will vote and we'll we'll touch on that uh, in a moment because, Van, I do want to talk about one of the issues that, in my view, should have been a focus for the Morrison government this week, and that is the crisis in aged care. We've seen uh, the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, that's the Union for Nurses, uh, we've seen the Health Health Services Union, the Australian Services Union, the United Workers Union, the uh, ACTU, that's Australian Unions, all talking about the crisis in aged care. We're seeing uh, the nurses in New South Wales will be taking protected industrial action next week because of the, the workload and the stress load uh, that they're facing in the New South Wales health system. But in the aged care system, now finally the Morrison government has agreed to pony up 1,500 Australian Defence Force personnel to help. The nurses made this point, and I think it's very stark. In the time it's taken between the Morrison government providing these uh, personnel and when the unions and providers together both first asked for them, 500 people have died in our aged care system. That is an appalling and atrocious abrogation of responsibility by firstly the minister and secondly the government more broadly. And you would think on that basis the minister would have already resigned. He has not. He has not resigned. Richard Colbeck, the aged care minister, not only has not resigned, he has not been Aged care minister and cricket fan. He, of course, famously, as you say, Van, went to the cricket instead of turning up to a committee hearing. Morrison was asked this question today, I believe it was, or, or possibly last week, and what's come out from this question was he was basically said, do you think Colbeck should have gone? He said he has appeared, as you know, at that hearing on many, many occasions. This has been fact-checked by the ABC, who found that Colbeck has only shown up to two of the 55 hearings that have been held by this committee on the issue of the COVID-19 response. Now, I mean, many, many can have different interpretations, but I'm pretty sure you don't get one appearance for every many in the sentence. It It is outrageous. He should be sacked. He hasn't been sacked. And frankly, Morrison is now defending him rather than sacking him. Wow. Van, where where do we go two, in HR from here? Two meetings out of 55. Now, I just want everyone to consider if you were rostered on for 55 shifts and only turned up to two of them, would you still have a job? Well, yeah. Well, imagine, imagine if you only turned up to two out of 55 performance reviews. You know, that's essentially what Senate hearings are for ministers. They're a, tell us about your portfolio. We have questions about what you've been doing. You have to answer those as part of our democratic system. And the blokes turned up twice. Oh, I just, it's just so awful. And every time you, I spoke to a friend who has a mother in aged care this morning, and obviously your stepmother is in aged care. And 
I think more Australians than the Prime Minister could even imagine. Um, uh, like it's this failure of the Liberals to comprehend or care. Is it comprehension? Is it care? Why not both? That things that affect individuals also affect the people around them. Yeah. Like they seem to think that, oh, well, you know, and we had this this sort of veiled language around the let it rip coronavirus response, this sort of attitude that, um, oh, well, you know, there are people who've sort of they've done their time and, you know, they're expendable. They're expendable to the market. I mean, there were columns published in newspapers about my dad's had his time and, you know, he'd be more than happy to die if it meant that the market could continue kind of thing. And one, most people are not emotion-free psychopaths and, you know, who are willing to, like, execute their father on the, family from on the, the altar of market ideology. capitalism. You know, that's yeah. that's not a very common position, actually. Yeah. One would describe it as an extremist minority, in fact. But also they don't seem to understand that entire families and communities are arranged around the care of elders, like and what happens is- to your stepmother affects you, even though, she, I mean, she's your stepmother, she's one yeah. of your parents, and that also affects me and that affects the people we interact with because there are complex intersectional personal and, relationships around that care experience. And and the idea that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm speaking no, over you. I, it's okay. It's, it also yeah. impacts our capacity to interact in the workforce, right? Like all of the conversation since sort of Christmas has been workforce capacity and what are we going to do around workforce and well, you know, our, our capacity, even yours and mine, in the kind of, you know, really flexible environment that you and I have, um, for which we're very grateful, we still have to consider what the issues our parents and, and step-parents face when it comes to this stuff. So there are knock-on effects. And, and I want to highlight something else that's come out that, again, the unions have really brought this to my attention, it was in The Guardian, uh, that Morrison commissioned the National Skills Commissioner in March of last year to look at the workforce issues around skills and capacity in aged care and disability, partly at that stage because we all thought coronavirus was sort of coming to an end and now was a good time, but also broadly what we had learnt about the impact in aged care from something like a pandemic, that report hasn't been released. Uh, Morrison's effectively hiding it. And when you look at the fact that we've had now that report, an aged care royal commission, uh, he's also said there'll now be some other inquiry into aged care. Like we know the problems and what they are. We just lack a government that cares enough to fix them. Seems to be the situation. Yeah, but I mean, there are there are trans children in Christian schools who've got to feel marginalised and excluded. Ben, I mean, I mean, can I can I just again just on that? You know, like there are we have lots of friends, and you know, maybe it's the age we are, but we have lots of friends who have aging parents, some of whom are in aged care, some of whom are starting to think about what aged care might mean for them in the coming years. We also have lots of friends who have children who are going to schools. Uh, and I have to say, I can't imagine that there is such a large proportion of parents sending their trans child 
to a Christian school that this is an issue that affects in real terms, actually impacts more than half a percent of the population, realistically. Whereas in aged care, you've got, I would say, you would have to think that half of the Australian, half of Australian households have somebody in or about to go into or, or has been in aged care. Like it just, the, the kind of focus on the minutiae versus the, the macro is mind-boggling. But I, we have been saying to people, if you have questions about Australian politics, send them to us, and we'll try to get through all of them by the election. But, you know, a lot of the questions I get are just like, why are things so awful? And yeah. it's like, well, I mean, the the Liberal Party win elections because they spend a lot of money. They hire very expensive consultants. They run a lot of advertising. They use all kinds of social media properties that cost money in order to promote their brand. They don't have as many people on the ground as the Labor Party do. They don't have the people power, but they have the financial power. And if you're trying to work out why on earth would a government prioritise this in you know the, the the protecting the privileged bigotry of a couple of Christian academies to you know marginalised children when there are hundreds of thousands of Australian families with parents in aged care tearing their hair out in fear and frustration about what's going on. Well, the answer is that there are really powerful donor groups that are based around certain special interests, whether it's, you know, prosecuting religious bigotry or anything else or fossil fuels or any number of things. And they spend money and they invest money in certain candidates and not others, even within the same party. There are a couple of people in the Liberal Party who you stare at going, how on earth does that person have a job? I wouldn't trust them to keep an eye on the tea towels. And the answer is that they are really successful fundraisers who draw lots of money from various special interest groups towards them and who will pursue the agenda of those special interest groups at the expense of the, of the population if the Liberal Party get elected. That's, that's where we are. That's reality. It's certainly a, a, an interesting kind of lens to put over this, isn't it? Because Richard Colbeck, you know, I can't, I can't think of a metric by which you would say he's a successful minister or that his portfolio is thriving. Uh, you know, Royal Commission, another inquiry, this uh, hidden report, deaths, the ADF has to be called in, you know, the, the providers and the unions are on a unity ticket going, we need more help. As you say, people tearing their hair out. I mean, what does it take to be sacked by Scott Morrison? You've got to, obviously, you know, I think the probably the first thing is you've got to not raise enough money. That's probably what yeah, it, I mean, I don't know if there's a limit. I don't think there's anything you can do to get sacked by Scott Morrison. I think we've heard enough allegations over the past 12 months. And as somebody from my generation, like I'm 47, I admit to that in public, like I, I still, my head keeps going back to the Mick Young affair. Mick Young was an incredibly successful and high-achieving, mm. like, member of the Labor cabinet during the, the Hawke era who was made to stand aside while it was investigated whether his wife had properly declared a Paddington bear that she'd bought from a toy, stop in, toy shop in England and brought back through Australia in a suitcase. 
had it been properly declared. This was a massive scandal when I was a kid, the Paddington Bear Affair. And it, it just seems almost quaint now. Like, yeah. oh, remember when we had standards, Doris? That was hilarious. And I'm just like, Richard Colbeck went to the cricket. 500 people have died in aged care since the government failed to like respond to requests for the Centre for Help. They have been warned and warned and warned. I did I, an interview for the ABC last week and there were more than 20,000 cases of coronavirus across the aged care system. It will be worse by today because we know that these numbers just yeah. go up. Like there more than half the deaths overnight in Queensland um, before uh, on Thursday night, and the figures on Thursday night, more than half of them were in age care. Like there is an absolute clear and present problem and danger, but that's not that's not the priority. This is the thing. Politics is all about opportunities and windows, and I want people to understand this as well. Why are some bills put up and why are others not put up? I mean, the we can say Australia needs all these things like an anti-corruption commission mm, or mm. we like, but if and the government can promise it and then just decide they don't have enough time to get it on the schedule, which is exactly what Michaela Cash said this week. Good, not enough time. Not enough time to fight corruption. Just not enough time. Van, well, I want us to move on because there are other, uh, I think, quite pressing dangers as well. Uh, and on that kind of topic about what does it take to be sacked by the Morrison government, you know, one of the things that I know you know a lot about and people might be scratching their heads going, what's going on, is that there are Morrison government members supporting QAnon and anti-vaxxer protests in Canberra right now as we speak. The Morrison government senator from Queensland, Jared Rennick, ad- addressed the QAnon and anti-vax protesters promised he was working on keeping children unvaccinated. George Christensen, the Morrison government MP from Queensland, has filmed himself at the rallies. Uh, Craig Kelly, former Liberal and uh, former member of the Morrison government, now, of course, infamously in bed with Clive Palmer, uh, (laughs) signed, signed unvaccinated protesters into parliament, including a woman who claimed that Scott Morrison will be sent to the gallows. I mean, this this is a government that doesn't have control of its own party and, and frankly, can't really claim to be governing, can it? I mean, oh, and its defence is always, oh, he's entitled to his opinion. It's like, aren't you the government? Aren't we in a public health emergency? Aren't we all supposed to be taking consistent and solid advice, you know, and conforming to it in the interest of, you know, collective health and wellbeing? Isn't, I was quite sure that that was the message, except that there are these carve-outs for George Christensen, Alex Antic and Gerald Rennick. You know, and it's it, it's disgu- it's just disgusting. It's just absolutely disgusting. The idea that unvaccinated people were signed into Parliament House by like it just and, and can so, I just yeah can just, I just say on that because I think I don't know if, I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but um, Zali Stegall had to sign Brittany Higgins into Parliament House so she could attend the apology that Morrison gave yesterday, uh, and there was some kerfuffle around her vaccination status. It turned out she was vaccinated and there ended up being no particular problem. But Zali Stegall has come out and gone, hang on a minute, there's a double standard here. This is – Craig Kelly is signing unvaccinated 
protesters into Parliament. We've seen the repercussions of that sort of behaviour in other places, and yet here is someone to whom the Prime Minister mentions by name in his apology who struggled to get into Parliament despite having worked there in the past. You know, this is, there's a bit of Morrison letting this go, not just failing to rein it in, but actually turning a bit of a blind eye as though giving a bit of a bit of a wink and a nod to this kind of behaviour by his MPs to to appeal to these people to try and win their votes, isn't there? Yep, because politics and electoral electoral victories are not made out are not made from mass positions. They're made from thin slices. People have different trigger issues, and you know, for the just you know, summer brats going on in Canberra, that trigger issue is, you know, they're convinced that 5G tower lizard people, Bill Gates clones who, you know, imprison children under the streets of Melbourne by the hundreds of thousands to answer to their, like, death lord, the great Satan Hillary Clinton and the rest of it, um, that those people in our, you know, universal enfranchisement system where everybody votes and everybody uh, has preference power, um, those preferences Scott Morrison wants to flow to him. Of course he does. But, you know, they should be taking action against these people because they should be disabusing these people of the propaganda notions that they have consumed. This is what makes me so angry. So these people think that black is white and up is down because they want to believe it, But and there's somebody on the internet, somebody, sometimes it's a group of nameless fascists in Germany, sometimes it's, you know, the Russians or you know, corporations or Steve Bannon or all kinds of different people are more than happy to pump them full of propaganda to tell them what they want is true when it is not. Scott Morrison hasn't taken action against that. You know, they are more worried about mean tweets against Peter, I am a cream puff Dutton um, than they are about like actual malignant neo-fascist propaganda that is telling people that things are true that are not true. They, I mean, they should be disabusing people of those notions and demobilising these protests. And then if they can earn these people, these people's votes through character integrity and, you know, political performance and ideology, great. But that's not what's going on. You have a group of people who have been whipped up into a frenzy by like a totally unregulated social media sector um, and uh, consuming propaganda like it's crack for rats and now having a street party in Canberra causing real disruption to people and it's all in the names of what exactly? Like compounding a public health emergency and non-compliance with proactive measures to minimise the spread of a lethal disease. Well, Dear God, like it has- I'm, I just I know people listen to this show because you know Ben and I, um, you know, exp- try to explain this stuff and put it in context, and we always try to end on a good news note. Today, I'm just really despondent. Like I've just had enough of the Morrison government. Like I am exhausted in just revisiting the same ineptitude, incapacity, unwillingness, cowardice, the sheer cowardice of not standing up to an to an absolute A-grade nitwit like Craig Kelly. Like if you are a coward in front of Craig Kelly, my 
God. Well, it does raise in my mind the question of how can Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton go to the Australian public talking about the threat of China and the threat of Russia and you can't trust Labor on defending the country when they can't even defend Parliament from Craig Kelly. I mean, they can't yeah, stand Craig, up to Craig Labor Kelly. Labor government won the Second World War, mate. That's so right. That's maybe, right. Labor maybe government back won down. the Second World War. Won the Second maybe World go, War. Maybe go hide in one of your muscle cars, mate. Maybe do that. It's been it's been described by, uh, you know, obviously talking to people in Canberra this week, uh, one person described it to me as QAnon on spring break that there are people cruising around in cars, flying flags out the windows, beeping their horns in support of each other, people drinking in the streets, you know, people bailing people up, like just a very un, not, not, not the un, most unsafe environment. They said, look, it's not the most unsafe environment that I've ever been in. Certainly there's an edge to it at times, uh, but it feels very much like spring break break for QAnon and frankly there's a lot of drunk people on the streets particularly in the afternoons and you mentioned ending on a good news story and I have to say our supporters and our listeners have said to me how much they enjoy the good news stories so we are going to do that Uh, and I want to give a shout out to everybody who has been supporting the week on Wednesday huge amount of support through our buy me a coffee page, buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Uh, you can check that out. But this is a, normally we do an environmental good news story. This is a little bit environmental, but also just, I think, a really lovely story. Uh, and it's about a million flowers blooming. You want yeah. me to tell it? Yeah, I do want you to tell it. Absolutely. Tell the story, Ben. You can do the good news this week. Well, a farmer in Timmering, or two farmers in Timmering, uh, have opened up their farm uh, to visitors. This is Adam and Clara Whip, uh, who normally uh, harvest sunflowers for oil or cattle feed, depending on how much rain they've had and how much feed they have. Uh, this year, They have a million sunflowers blooming in Timmering. It's in northern Victoria. And instead of harvesting the flowers for oil or for cattle feed, uh, they've decided to let people come to their farm and take photos with the sunflowers. And they've done it because they feel that people need a bit of sunlight and a bit of sunshine after all the lockdowns and the COVID restrictions and protections we've had. And so... Every day, people are rocking up. Uh, it's a lovely story. It also speaks to the fact that those areas have had a lot of rain and the the, the cattle are fed and they're able to do this. Uh, but I think it's just a lovely story of people in the community going out to uh, take care of each other. So I'm going to basically end the show on that note, Van. I think that's a good news story. And what we'll do is I want to thank again everybody who's been supportive of the show, the uh, supporters that we've got through Buy Me A Coffee. I'm going to read out our cadre supporters and then our extending the reach. If you do want to support the show, please feel free. It is 
always important to Van and I that we will keep the podcast free to download, free to listen to for everyone. All of the contributions go back into the show, usually for promotion. We do keep it pretty raw. We are working on improving the sound quality all the time, and I appreciate people's feedback on that. But to our Cadre supporters, thank you so much. Leona Gibbons, someone at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman. I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Cadigal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Naronga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson. They're our cadre supporters. We really appreciate the contribution that you're making every month. Do you want me to do Extending the Reach? That'd be great. Uh, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bra—sorry, Bra- Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, Gail Vest, Greg Mart, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, wise, wise, not wise, Sarah and K Tui, Bo Sullivan, Elaine and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, Daniel Slavin, at the real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, also known as at not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, and Pauline Bate. It's actually one of my favorite bits of the show, is reading out the names. I'm like, oh, hi everyone. And of course, Van. These are the the people who are making that extra contribution every month. Cadre uh, supporters are making a $20 a month contribution. Extending the Reach supporters are making a $10 a month contribution. We have lots of people who make $5 a month contributions and some people who just make once-off contributions. And, of course, we appreciate you as well. Uh, we I try and get to every uh, comment that people make on the supporter page. So please do know that we we appreciate all the support. It really, we love hearing too about people joining their union. Had some people contact me this week, Van, saying they've become active, they've become a, a delegate. Uh, I had one person say they use our podcast to help equip them in their work as a delegate and how they talk to their fellow co-workers about political issues. That so, makes me absolutely overjoyed. I can't even tell you. That really makes me happy. That's cheered me up no end. That's really great news. All right, that's the week on Wednesday. Don't forget to like, share, comment. Don't forget to listen to the weekend wrap. Don't forget to talk to your workmates. Don't forget to join your union. And we will see you again oh, next Oh, Wednesday. and I have news. Oh, yes. Um, I will be appearing uh, at Adelaide Writers Week and Ben is coming with me, which will be great, uh, to talk about my book Q and On and On. I also have an event coming up in Canberra, which I will advertise on my public Facebook page and the Week on Wednesday page to also talk about the kind of conspiracy cult madness that we're seeing there. That's very exciting. And uh, I am am doing my interesting super secret uh, TV thing is upcoming. But all the things about my book and public appearances and Ben and I, that's what I had to say, Ben and I are doing an event for the Fabians who are 
progressive organisation that have existed for more than 100 years. Uh, Bernard Shaw was a, a founding member and we are doing a talk um, from as the week on Wednesday talking about the workplace and insecurity. And for those of you who write to us going, I'd like to understand more about politics, we do recommend joining the Fabians. They're not party aligned. They are a talks and ideas discussion group that have existed for a really long time that hold events all the time talking about political issues and are a great place to start. Absolutely right. And that is the week on Wednesday. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. I'm going to try and get the train home now. Bye. Bye.